This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel According to Musical Theater with Nathan LaRude, Dean of Trinity Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. And Peter Elliott from Vancouver, British Columbia, where for 25 years I was Dean of Christchurch Cathedral in Vancouver and now... As I like to say, I'm a has-dean. I do a little bit of teaching, but the thing I enjoy the most, as I think I've said a number of times, is uh, hanging out with Nathan LaRude and talking about musical theater. Talking and about today, musicals. Today. Today. After, today. Oh, at long last. At long at last. And we are recording this between Christmas and New Year's, which yes. is the perfect time to talk about The Sound of Music, which strangely has become a Christmas musical for lots yeah, of people. Yeah, I think I blame television. It was on last night on ABC <laughs> or CBS. I saw a bunch of people tweeting about it. I'm like, oh, yes, I remember. This is kind of a Christmas rite of passage. You watch The Sound of Music. I mean, and who, you know, My Favorite Things is basically has become a Christmas anthem. It's got snow. It's got yodeling Germans. I mean, it's got <laughs> Edelweiss. What doesn't, what doesn't scream Christmas about yeah, The Sound of I Music? I know. And when we taught this, I think it was last summer at Vancouver School of Theology, one of our, one of the students in the class mentioned the phenomenon, I'd never heard of it before, where families actually, or households, uh, whatever, stop watching it at the wedding of Maria and Captain Von Trapp. So uh, they watch everything up to there. They watch Uh the love story Uh and then Then they they shut it off. How yeah, interesting. Well, we maybe yeah. we want to put a pin in that and come back to it because the way that the marriage trope and the nationalistic trope play out in this that that, that moment actually is is a, a much discussed moment in scholarship on the, on the film of the sound of music that moment where the wedding bells turn into the one solitary Anschluss bell and the marriage yes. trope kind of crossfades into the political story and that's a yeah. that's an interesting moment so maybe we want to return to that uh, <laughs> that act break it, if you will that commercial it is break. A, it's a love story. But it's also a political story. Very much so. And the very last uh, musical that Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote together uh, just after its opening, uh, Oscar Hammerstein died in 1960, uh, stomach cancer, and uh, so didn't live to see the success of The Sound of Music as a stage play written for uh, Mary Martin originally, an interesting backstory. Yeah, Mary Martin, who had been there, their Nellie Forbush in South Pacific, so had a, a track record with Roger and Hammerstein, and her agent saw a German film, I think, about the, the Von Trapp singers, kind of a little bit of a propaganda piece post-Second World War, and thought this would be a great vehicle for Mary Martin. They approached the playwriting, uh, and actually kind of Broadway musical uh, libretto crew, Hal Lindsey and Richard Krauss, I think they wrote the book For Anything Goes, they wrote Life with Father, uh, kind of had won a Pulitzer Prize for an Irving Berlin musical, so a well-respected kind of Broadway writing team. Uh, and the idea was to write a, a, a straight play for Mary Martin with some interstitial music from the Von Trapp family catalog about the story. And she said, well, maybe we ask my friends Dick and Oscar if they could write us a couple, you know, a couple little ditties that we can kind of throw in there. And Roger and Hammerstein took a look at the material and started to talk with Mary Martin about it and decided, actually, this would make a full-blown, like, scripted musical. Although, interestingly, it's it, then and now has been kind of, uh, what, critiqued, I suppose, as being maybe the least successful in terms of the integration yeah. of story and song of Rodgers and Hammerstein's, uh, also, the o- I think, the only Rodgers and Hammerstein musical to feature a book that wasn't written by Oscar Hammerstein. 
so much more of a collaborative effort, Sound of Music, than some of their other pieces. And, and that may explain part of the reason why it doesn't quite cohere dramatically in the same way that Oklahoma and Carousel and The King and I do. Uh, the, the film, I think, makes, makes better use of the material in some ways than the, than the stage show does. The songs are pretty easy to uh, move around and slot in different places, which is usually a sign that they're not particularly wedded to the dramatic action in the same right, way that, right, um, that right. other Rodgers and Hammerstein pieces are. But even, even in 1959, when the show premiered, there were a number of critics who say, oh, this is disappointing. Rodgers and Hammerstein have taken us back to the earlier operata tradition where the songs just kind of, you know, become these set pieces. They're not tied to the, to the dramatic action. And we were hoping for something that was more in the direction of the integrated musical. So that's always been a little... Uh, a little what a little tension at the heart of the sound of music yeah and there's a big difference between the um the stage play and the movie and i think yeah. most most of us are probably most familiar with the film with uh julie andrews and uh christopher Plummer. Yep. uh I, I you know i can never resist fine canadian actor connection fine yes, canadian indeed. actor who apparently called it uh, amongst his friends, the sound of mucus. He thought <laughs> that it was just terribly saccharine and sweet, as did Pauline Kale, the film reviewer who became the New Yorker's great uh, bitchy film reviewer for decades. She wrote about it in McCall's and trashed it and yep. was fired because she trashed it. Anyway, Christopher Plummer, Julie Andrews, um, uh, an amazing, uh, I remember seeing uh, 1965, I think it was released somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And our family went, uh, we lived in the Niagara region of Southern Ontario. Mm -hmm. So went to Buffalo, a big trip over the river, over the Niagara River on the, on the bridge to, to see it. And it was one of those films that had an intermission as well. Mm -hmm. um, and was filmed in uh, 70 millimeter big screen um, when the curtains opened and Julie Andrews comes over the mountains with that fabulous lush orchestration and seeing the hills are alive. I mean, it was a transcendent moment for this young, when I was a young kid watching this, this thing happen. And then the, the narrative that unfolds is so immediately engaging, I think. Yeah. Um, because as you say, pulling together uh, a love story, the marriage trope, cute kids, and then the political story. And I think really in a number of ways, what uh, they were uh, seeking to do with this was to make sense of how to regard German friends post second world war. I mean, right. there's a whole political agenda going on here too. Yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how deliberate that is, but certainly, I mean, you, you, you get the sense that at a sort of deeper psychological level, part of the reason that this story is resonating with Americans, with Canadians, I imagine to a certain degree with with British. I mean, the, the Sound of Music is a phenomenon in the UK. It's like one of their most beloved. Um, and I, th I think this is a kind of wrestling with the, with the Second World War. What do we do with the fact that, I mean, for American culture, I don't know how this plays out in Canada. You know, so many of us trace our sort of either literal lineage or our sort of metaphorical lineage back to these German-speaking bastions 
traditions of high culture. I mean, Austria represents, you know, sort of the center of the classical music tradition, for, right? This is the land of Mozart. It's the land of Strauss. It's where the Viennese operetta tradition comes from. I mean, so much of the kind of American sense, of sort of European white American culture comes from this German identity. So, you know, the crisis of the Second World War, right, and seeing Nazism. It, so in some ways, the sound of music is like a, what, it's like an attempt to, you know, who, who are the good Germans? How can we reconcile ourselves with right. that, that culture that had turned so horrible, so ugly, we'd fought a war against them? How can we redeem the German people from Nazism? And Maria really becomes the, the linchpin for that, right? She is the good German. She's the sweet, yes. pure, rural, right? Like she's up in the mountains. She's singing. She's Catholic. She's a nun. My heart wants to sing like a church bell. I mean, like, what, 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 is, what can possibly be wrong with Maria von Trapp? So she comes into the von Trapp family, redeems the captain from this kind of proto-fascism that he's running his house under, yeah. uh, redeems him through the power of music, redeems the family, and then they all walk off into the Alps to, you know, like, redeem the German people from the clutches of Nazism. Uh, so she, she, she functions actually, I think, pretty deeply significantly in the American psyche as a way of making sense of the Second World War and, and how we can continue to claim a kind of German, a European, we might even say a kind of white supremacist ancestry in the midst of the, you know, on the other side of fascism. Um, Nazism, you know, Nazism is a threat from outside. These are the good Germans. These are the good Austrians. These are the good Americans. Of course, that's who the Von Trapps become. They become good Americans running their little camp up in Vermont. Yeah. So it is. Yeah, Politically, sure. it functions in a really interesting way, I think, in terms of American and North American identity after the Second World War. And one of the differences between the uh, stage play and the film is the stage play actually pays a little more attention to the internal struggle within Austria yeah. about the Nazis. And there were a couple songs that were omitted and a couple songs added to the film, which we'll get into in a couple moments, but particularly a song sung by Uncle Max and Elsa. Is it the Baroness. The Baroness, yes. Yeah. El Elsa Schrader. Yeah. Um, called No Way to Stop It, which is a kind of um, musical, it's kind of a song capitulation to the inevitability of the Nazis. And you kind of put up with it. And Captain yeah. Von Trapp in the song actually argues against this kind of inevitability and, and uh, needing to fight against all of the forces that just say, I, I, I. Mm -hmm. um, the, the self-serving tendencies. And I, I've always thought it, it, was, it was a shame uh, or unfortunate, a shame is too difficult, too hard, that it wasn't included in the film because yeah. I think it did give a little more uh, structure, depth and um, complexity to to the story. Yeah, it, it you, you miss... I mean, you, you understand, you know, they, they wanted to cast Eleanor Parker as Baroness von Schrader. Eleanor Parker is magnificent as Baroness von Schrader. So I don't I don't begrudge that casting at all. But she can't sing a note. And, <laughs> you know, there is something I mean, so th at one level, there's something very interesting in the film that Max and the Baroness do not sing. I mean, that in itself is an interesting yeah. dramatic choice. Right. The film is so much about the power of music. And in a way, you know, the sort of the bad Germans and Max and Elsa kind of represent the you know accommodationist Viennese versus the good Germans, the Captain and Maria, when 
when when the, the bad ones don't sing at all, it's like, well, that kind of illustrates the point right there, right? Like they're so sophisticated, they can't even be bothered to sing. Um, <laughs> but you're right. It's it's a shame because No Way to Stop It is actually kind of a great, It's a, I mean, it's a really interesting, it's Roger, Roger's kind of doing his little Richard Strauss Viennese operetta. You know, it's a little, it's a little uh, Viennese waltz kind of. It's a, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful melody. Um, and the lyrics are interesting. She, you know, she sings you, yeah. you dewy eyed idealist. Why can't you, why can't you just grow up and be a realist? You know, the world is going to keep going around and around and around and there's no way to stop it. Like, don't get in the way of everything that's happening. Just make your peace with it. And that, yeah. I mean, when you lose that, you know, when you lose that tension at the heart of Elsa and the captain's relationship, um, you, you lose a lot of the shading of this political story that The Sound of Music is telling, right? About why, you know, really asking the question, how did this happen? How did Nazism take over Germany? I mean, like, how could something so abhorrent have happened to people like us, right? I think that's the, that's the yeah, deep that's the question yeah. that Americans, Canadians, British people are asking. At the, you know, how, they were just like us, and fascism took them over. How can this have happened? So the answer is, well, you know, it's these it's these bad, sophisticated Viennese. It's, you know, the Baroness von Schrader with her millions and Max Detweiler, the, you know, the captain's gay friend. Uh, they, you know, they they represent the, the 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 collaborationists, the collusionists who were too sophisticated right. to understand the threat that Nazism represented and just kind of sloughed it off. Um, that's the that's the bad answer. And the, and the, the musical doesn't, you know, castigate them for this. They're, they're treated as. I don't know, sympathetic characters, you know, but they need to be, they need to be excised from the narrative in order for Maria and the captain to kind of, you know, right. their love affair. Right. A crazy planet full of crazy people is somersaulting all around the sky. And every time it turns another somersault, another day goes by. And there's no way to stop it, no, there's no Stop it even if you try So I'm not going to worry No, I'm not going to worry Every time I see another day go by While somersaulting at a cockeyed angle Make a cockeyed circle round the sun And when we circle back to where we started from Another year has run And there's no way to stop it No, there's no way to stop it If the earth wants to roll around the sun You're a fool if you worry You're a fool if you worry Over anything but little number one That's you That's I and I, and me, that all-absorbing character, that fascinating creature, that super special feature, me. And I think it goes even, uh, all of that, and I think it goes even a little bit deeper than that in, 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 in No Way to Stop It, all about self-serving tendency, the I, 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 mm -hmm. the world revolving around us as opposed to us being part of a world that is revolving. And uh, I think the the song for me took on a kind of uh, new resonance uh, through the era. Remember a few years ago when there was a president of the United States called Donald Trump, who <laughs> uh, seemed to want the world to revolve around his every women tweet, but that the tendency of, of, of uh, self-serving as opposed to a more generous 
other directed uh, love. I think um, uh, No Way to Stop It kind of picked up and then contrasted the the world from which Maria comes, the world of the convent, the Mm -hmm. world of faith, the world of altruism, her genuine love of the children and caring for them more. Uh, This is contrasted with the Baroness and her wanting to surround herself with opulence and uh and max who seems to want to make a buck out of uh out of the family you know uh yeah although he graft, he also know? helps them escape it i mean that it's they're interesting well, I mean, in some it. ways like the baroness and max are some of the most interesting characters you know <laughs> because agree. she she does have you know she she seems genuinely to be in love with the captain when she first arrives she says yeah. oh my gosh these mountains like and i think she she says something like i understand you now i've seen these i've seen these mountains like why don't why don't you spend all your time here? This is where you belong. And he said, well, maybe I'm just looking for a reason to stay. He looks deep into her eyes. So there is some. I mean, she has the power of love, right? Like she's got the well, sound of and music, she, and she willingly leaves. She willingly in leaves. Some ways. Yeah, she kind of understands she, at a certain level. Like yeah. I, you know, this isn't gonna. Uh, we're too different. Uh, I can't ask this man to change to suit me. I can't change to suit him. I In the film, I think she says, I have my own little set of problems back in Vienna. And you think, oh, yes, she's got about eight boyfriends on a string. I always, like, I, she was always the character that I found the most compelling. I'm like, look, we just, like, follow that story, please. Like, let's go back to Vienna with Baroness von Schrader, because I want to see where, where she's going. So maybe it's a bit of a foiled or a, a fallen moment of kenosis that she leaves behind Yeah, uh, the captain and... And that world of privilege, and it was another thing. I just, as I was thinking about it today, gosh, it's the story of privilege. It I really mean, is. As much as our hearts want to go out to yeah. to the family, and they do, and with good reason, and all that sort of stuff, these are people who live with never needing to yeah. want for a, thing. for a thing. I mean, you can have an orchestra in in your home. Yeah. Uh, you well, can and, have professional marionettes in your home. And uh, that's kind of, I mean, it, the the, the stage tears. version almost kind of like, it, that becomes kind of the, the love story. The, the love song between Elsa and the captain is um, how can love survive? And it's all about how, like, yes. we don't have to, like, we're not, we're not starving. Uh, you're not going to have to fight for me. We have, I, I she's, she's, I have a diesel yacht in my backyard how can love survive we are so wealthy no little shack do you share with me we do not flee from a mortgagee nary a care in the world have we how can love survive you're fond of bombs and you own a lot i have a plane and a diesel yacht Plenty of nothing you haven't got How can love survive? No rights for us on the top of a bus In the face of the freezing breezes You reach your goals in your comfy old rolls Or in one of your Mercedes. 
And that actually, be, I mean, it's treated as a joke, right? Like, oh, she's so sophisticated, she's so brittle, she's so funny. But that actually is kind of the question, right? Like, they can't, their love cannot survive because they are both so privileged. The captain, and so then when, you know, in the original version, they, the captain and Maria don't sing something good, they sing an ordinary couple. That's all we'll ever be. Yes. We're just gonna be farmers out and, you know, like that's the redemptive love story is people who yeah. are, to a certain degree, kind of renouncing their privilege, I suppose. And you wonder, I mean, like, is that meant to be an echo of like, they're gonna move to the United States and become farmers in Vermont and give up this whole kind of, you know, European wealth. I mean, the captain did lose most of his most of his money. He took yeah. it out of a British bank and invested it in an Austrian bank, and they were, I think, pretty well broke by the time yeah. they escaped Austria. So, I mean, like, there is there is sort of that that money and class question is really kind of right at the heart yeah. of these love stories. And so, two of the songs get taken out, and two new ones get put in post Oscar Hammerstein's death. The first one being the great recitative area, I have confidence, Maria leaving the convent, marching her way to the doorway of the captain's house and yeah. uh, looking at it and saying, oh, help, you know, in that great moment. Um, I always thought when I was a kid, I thought she said, oh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the, and oh, the, we, yeah. we were supposed to like oh, exactly. God. She's like this beautiful pure nun, and then we finally get to see basically the show moment. Like, oh shit! <laughs> like, I always kind of love that, and then oh no, there's a p at the end of that word. But okay. <laughs> but it is a song of kind of optimism and uh, self confidence. Yeah, it, it's it her. It's her. Feels- it's her American bona fides, right? Like this is sort of established. Right. And and such, I mean, it was not written for Mary Martin, but should have been written for Mary Martin, right? This is Nellie right. Forbush. This is this American is a- brash, like nothing can stand in my way. I have confidence in sunshine. I have confidence in rain. I have confidence that spring will come again. Like that it's is- It's a cockeyed optimist all yes, over again. it is. It's a great know, tune too. Um, it's just a great it's song. It's a great tune. It's right out of Dale Carnegie. Yep. It's American optimism, sunshine. I have confidence in me. <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, know, I mean, all of these other things too, nature, church, God, whatever. But besides right. what you see, I have confidence in me. <laughs> I am seeking the courage I lack. The courage to serve them with reliance Face my mistakes without defiance Show them I'm worthy And while I show them I'll show me So let them bring on all their problems I'll do better than my best I have confidence they'll put me to the test but I'll make them see I have confidence in me Somehow I will impress them I will be firm but kind And all those children, heaven bless them They will look up to me And mind me with each step I am more certain Everything will turn out fine I have confidence the world can all be mine They'll have to agree I in me. And I mean, the American narrative, just because we're in this season, uh, 
there's no way to stop it. What is the way to stop Trumpism? It's uh, the sunny optimism of Grandpa Joe Biden, right? No, brother. <laughs> uh, America can do anything. You know, you get that sort of rah-rah. Yeah, you want to see if you'll... It resonates. Uh, but the other song, and uh, I think it's a really interesting, it's a beautiful song, you know, the gazebo song, yeah. uh, Something Good, where uh, the captain and uh, Maria pledge love to each other in this beautiful melody, words maybe, probably written by Richard Rogers. By Richard Rogers, yeah. There's some there's some questions about that. Ernst Lehman, who wrote the screenplay, takes credit for he, you know Richard Rogers was kind of apparently out to lunch or something like that, and he I, I don't remember if it was something good or high of confidence. One of them, he said, basically, I wrote that, and we just let Richard take the credit for it. But it, yeah. but it is an interesting. I mean, I like I like the idea that Richard Rogers wrote something good on his own and that, I mean, I, I tell myself that's our psychological doorway into the character of Dick Rogers. Um, if, if the sound of music is sort of quintessential Oscar Hammerstein, right? This is, you know, the, the man who didn't have a cynical bone in his body, the hills are alive with the sound of music. That's his, that's his religious training. That's his spirituality, right? Nature, music, my heart wants to sing like a, like a bird that flies to a church on a breeze or whatever, you know, it's like just kind of this mishmash of church, nature, spirituality, and music. That's Oscar Hammerstein II. And Oscar Hammerstein II believes that is the power that can redeem the entire world, uh, not least, you know, not Nazi-occupied Nazi Austria. For Dick Rogers, who's a man who's struggling with alcoholism, who had a difficult relationship with his children and his wife, by some accounts was a pretty violent man, a pretty angry man, uh, not an easy man to love. I love the idea that he puts in the mouth of Maria von Trapp Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable path, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you whether should. Whether or not you should. So at one level, and we might get into this a little bit, like that's some questionable theology, shall we say. Or at least this is some controversial theology. Yeah. yeah. But psychologically... Uh, beautiful for a man who's yeah. struggling with his demons and yeah. longing, I think, I mean, as we all must, right? Longing to be loved, not, yes. you know, despite, yes. for, d not despite for who he is, but for who he is. Uh, and yes. tr trying to find a path through darkness and pain and grief and probably a lot of choices that he regretted uh, to yeah. something that felt honest and true, which feels like that's the psychological story that that song is telling. Uh, although, and as you pointed wonderful. out, it's, a, yeah. Well, it's wonderful that it's included in most of the recent stage versions I've seen. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking earlier before we started recording, in some ways, the film, the continuity of the film, the integration of uh, the song and dramatic arc is much better in the film than in the stage play, which... Yeah as you said, kind of has this clunky, let's stop and sing Do, Re, Mi, let's stop and sing The Lonely Goat Herd or whatever. Yeah, it's set, um, it's set, set, pieces, a, set pieces for uh, children, uh, which is yeah. never a good idea for a Broadway musical. So I think, you know, when it's reimagined for the stage, as it has been revival after revival, something good almost always makes its way in yeah. to the stage play. But yeah, theologically, I mean, do we really believe that the only way that we deserve love is at some point in our past, 
we've actually done something good. And so love becomes then a reward for good behavior rather than I think the kind of Christian theology that I like to embrace is love either the love of God for us or the love that we are privileged to share with another or with others is unmerited, you know? Yeah. It, it's gift, it's grace. And we don't do good things, maybe this is my point, yeah. so that we can get love. Right. We do good things because good things need to be done. Um, and I think because it's in our deep nature to do good things, also in our deep nature to do bad things, that's another conversation. But I don't think, I do not believe, let me put it that way, just to get the conversation going. Mm -hmm. I do not believe that love comes into our lives as a reward for doing something good. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done described this song earlier as a, as sort of a Calvinist approach yeah. to love. Yeah. And actually, I think I'm going to say the opposite. Um, okay. Let, let me, I'm, I'm just kind of teasing this out here. So, so the Calvinist approach is more what you're talking about, right? Like we, we are at, at ur Calvinism, right? Total which is not where you're going. Total depravity, right? We don't deserve a thing. There is, there is no spark of the divine in us. Everything comes as no. pure grace. Uh, it's entirely yeah. from outside. It's entirely imputed upon us. And that's actually not what Maria is saying. Actually, in some ways, this is her, her song, not, not, not surprisingly, is a much more Catholic approach, which is, mm. yes, there is a, I mean, most of me is pretty miserable. And yet, because of what I am, because of the grace that I am receiving, right, she's in the captain's arms, he loves her fully. And it allows her to say, actually, I can't be all bad, right? And in some ways, that's what the song is saying, right? There must, and I, and, and she said, I, I don't really know what it is, right? But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must be something because this can't just be entirely imputed on me. I can't be a miserable right. sinner who is completely worthless. There must be something about me 
and and as you say, that can be what that deserves this. That's where it gets problematic, right? Like because she right, earned this right. love by virtue of her good behavior. Well, that yeah, that's a that's a tricky theology. But if what she's saying is actually there is the spark of goodness in me that this love right. that I am receiving is drawing out, that's a very Catholic understanding, right? That she was created in the image of God. Yeah. And that that imprint is never lost from her, no matter where she goes in life, no matter what she does. Uh, and that in the arms of, of a beloved, that godlike quality of Maria is being revealed, maybe. Now, you, uh, in terms of, like, the character Maria von Trapp, you're like, well, what did she do? I mean, like, this woman is nothing but <laughs> well, sunlight and roses. Except she was a problem. And well, that's, that's true. that's how the whole thing starts. I mean, yeah. She climbs trees, scrapes her knees. Right, total depravity. <laughs> she wanders, waltzes on her way to mass and whistles on the stair. And underneath her wimple, she has curlers, curlers in her hair. Well, there's the, there's the depravity. Her. I mean, with curlers there, in her hair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? Like, does she... I, I don't think of Maria von Trapp as a particularly complicated character. I would... Right. I, I mean, but... Something Good is a complicated song. So it's an interesting, like, if, if Maria is honestly saying, you know, to a certain degree, I have internalized the story that the nuns have been telling me about myself, which is right. that I'm a problem. And you can imagine, right? And she, she sketches, I, I think at one point, you know, like, we get the sense that she didn't have a particularly happy childhood. She never references her parents. You get the sense that the nuns kind of took her in. I kind of imagine Maria almost as like a foster child, sort of adopted by the nuns. And, you know, she, she talks about looking over the, the wall and seeing the nuns at work and longing to be I mean she wants a family right she wants to belong sure. um, yeah. so there actually is some interesting psychology at work in this song that she has internalized this narrative about herself I'm wicked I'm bad the, my, the, the heart that wants to sing like the church that flies is a problem to the is a threat to the family that I've chosen which is this monastery uh, the reverend mother yeah. is a kind of surrogate mom for her like she has a you yes. know there's a kind of identification there that teaches her something but it's in in falling in love for the first time that's how maria and then and then you know when she when she realizes that she has feelings for the captain she flees right like this can't right. be that this is wrong it's gotten in the way i think the, the the reverend mother asks her early in the film like what have you learned here and she says the most important thing is to learn the will of god and to do it and so when she falls in love love is a threat to that right i came on god's mission my mission is to redeem this family to kind of bring them back to God and get them ready for Elsa to be there. And I, my feelings got in the way of that. My eroticism is a threat to God's yes. will in my life. That's the wickedness in me. And it's very much tied, I think, to her nature, her love of nature, her love of singing, the wimple, the curlers under her hair. She wants to be cute. She loves girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes. I mean, she's in <laughs> touch with her physicality in a way that is a problem for her. Uh, until this kind of redemptive moment where all of what society has told her is the wicked, miserable curlers in her hair is somehow right. like that is not enough to squash the, the part of me that responds to the captain's love. That's something good. That's the, that's the heart of God beating within me. So it is a kind of salvation almost for Maria. It is. And of course... The actual story of Maria von Trapp and the captain is very different from the story that uh, that that the Sound of Music tells. Sure. Because, and not that it matters, but just to note that probably Captain von Trapp was the the softer, the more empathetic character in the household. Uh, Maria was more of the disciplinarian. Um, 
they didn't climb over the mountains from Salzburg to get into uh, free territory, Switzerland. Well, Switzerland is on the other side of Austria anyway. So yeah, they're they're climbing over the mountains to get to Munich, which is sort of like out of the frying pan into the fire. (laughs) In fact, apparently they took a train quite peacefully and got into Italy and then over to the United States. But all of that, uh, all of that narrative is is a construction of the of the playwrights and uh, and Hammerstein and Rogers, uh, leading to the great anthem from Sound of Music. And we've talked about the great Rogers and Hammerstein anthems before. We've got "You'll Never Walk Alone" from Carousel. We've got something wonderful from The King and I. I guess we've got Bally High from South Pacific, but the sine qua non of uh, of of their anthems really is climb every mountain, sung at weddings and funerals. It's brimming with the American optimism that we talked about. You know, there's no there's no obstacle so great as it cannot be overcome Mm -hmm. and that life is really about this. uh, I'll stop this metaphor in a moment, you know, um, seeing the obstacles that are in our way and gosh darn uh, climbing it until we find our our dream. Mm -hmm. And I guess for for Sister Maria. It is an Austrian, almost Nazi German naval captain with seven children. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And apparently the dream is really a farm in Vermont in a kind of... Yeah, what uh, is her dream? I mean, it... I, the, the 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 script really does trace the crisis of vocation for Maria in a way that is I, I find very compelling. I, I hadn't really picked this yeah. up until I, a couple of nights ago. I watched the the BBC you know live version of it, which is the original Lindsay and Krauss script, and some of the lines I recognize from the film. But they really unpack in in some really interesting ways this woman's crisis of vocation. Right, like she she begins yes. the show with an earnest desire to do the will of God. That is the thing that is driving that. I mean, if if she has an I want song, she doesn't. Really Really, uh, they kind of give her "I have confidence" in the in the movie, which is sort of her "I want" song. Right. Um, I suppose yeah. the sound of music is kind of her "I want" song, right? But but it's mm-hmm. she desires to do the will of God. That is the thing that drives this woman. Yeah. Fe- when she remember she's she's praying on the bed, right? She arrives in the van trap. Dear Father, now I know why you've sent me here. It's to help prepare these children for a new mother. And she blesses them all, and she, you know she's like, "Oh, I get it now. Like this is my this is my mission. I'm a nun. I'm gonna help." And then falls in love with the captain. That you know throws a wrench in the whole thing. The the Reverend Mother kind of has to pick her up, as you say. She kind of sings the hymn of whatever this is, right? Like you're you know just because you love the captain doesn't mean you love God less. You can the the vocation right. to marriage. This is I mean this is very Catholic, right? The vocation to marriage is just as sacred as a vocation to being a nun and you know you don't have to vow chastity because you're terrified of your own sexuality and the the reverend mother is actually a very like sophisticated (laughs) religious character well Uh, and she functions as the priest she's the priest women do the priest throughout uh, uh, the priest and the mother rogers yeah yeah Um, she mothers maria in the same way that maria mothers liesel right there's this kind of interesting kind of foster foster mothering happening here but yeah she is the priest slash mother um, and then sings Climb Every Mountain, which becomes kind of the show's anthem. That's how the, the Broadway musical yeah. ends with Climb Every Mountain. I guess the, the movie does too. Yes. They're climbing over the mountain. The movie does too, as yeah. they're climbing over as they're climbing over the Alps <laughs> the to Alps. go into deepest, <laughs> darkest Nazi into, into Germany. Southern Germany. That's right. Yeah. Well that's we'll just sort of we'll just we'll, we'll align we'll over that. that. We'll, let that we'll let that pass. We'll let that pass. It's all but mountains, it is, it's all uh, Europe. 
I think your point into the kind of subject of our of these podcasts, it is probably the most Christian yeah. of all of their works, For sure. um, and the most explicitly religious. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got nuns. You've yeah. Got oh my services, God, Richard Rogers writes got... Catholic Mass. I mean, Dixit Dominus <laughs> is a, actually a pretty successful little bit of Catholic it's liturgy. It's a great tune. Yeah. It's a great so many, tune. So many nuns. Um, so many so nuns. many nuns. Um, and you can't help but have i uh, uh, i suppose there are some people who just hate it uh but a well done production of uh of sound of music can't can't help but have your heart moved yeah um, there is power in this isn't it story. There's yeah very i mean it's I, yeah. it, it reminds me of our very earliest conversations in in that restaurant in Vancouver about kind of the gospel of musical theater, which in so many, you know, and this is sort of the it's er text in some ways that love redeems us. And in Sound of Music, okay. sort of love of God and love of another human being at first seem to be in conflict. But, you know, Maria uh, is yes. redeemed when she realizes I can love God by loving Georg von Trapp and his children. That's a religious yes. vocation for me. And in the process, yes. I am restored to something like the full image of God. I claim something good inside of me. I mean, it is yes. really the most sort of class. So the, I, what I almost want to call like the the best use of the marriage trope, really, in the Broadway canon, yes. uh, from a theological standpoint, yes. maybe, is The Sound of Music and the the kind of beautiful picture that it... Now, the other side of that, of course, is at a certain level, the marriage trope is always operating at a social level, right? So this is something good is not just about Maria. It's about Austria. It's about, you know, and so so there the answer is like, claim your Edelweiss. That's the purest part of you, <laughs> which is small and white and clean and bright and is a kind of mm. weird, like quasi-white supremacist, like here's how we're going to redeem. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, it yeah, gets yeah. complicated as soon as you start pulling it apart. Uh, the cultural redemption on offer here is kind of redemption through doubling down on a kind of you know pre-nazi german austrian whiteness yeah but it is also about liberation it's also about freedom it is also about courage Mm -hmm. um the courage of the family to escape from what was a sure fate for him in being a naval captain it's a kind of anthem to freedom uh, away from oppression uh, at a certain level in the the capacity to pull yourself up to face your obstacles and just to go for it and thereby to achieve freedom 
out of oppression and that sort of stuff. Uh, maybe I'm asking too much. No, about, I think that's uh, right. I mean, that, that's a very that's a that's a very American narrative, generous. right? So, yeah, yeah certainly we can understand 1959. Yes, absolutely. That's, you know, like yeah. that's fueling all of our nationalist nationalist fantasies and all that kind of thing. But yeah, at the level of character and at the level of human psychology, um, that yes. works dramatically, right? Like here is yeah. Uh, here is here is redemption played out for you on a broad. So for Maria, but for the captain too, right? This is what allows him to, you know, he's sort of caught between the forces of Viennese complicity and Maria, this sort of more pure rural church-driven, you know, sophistication. That's where he, you know, he goes. They give up everything. They go, you know, sort of climb the mountains to freedom uh, and find a new dream, right? Like, and so right. at one level, like the new dream is America. The children become American. Um, they get completely integrated into this new kind of world order. But it, there is, you know, at the level of theology, right? Like sometimes you you lose everything. Um, sometimes you lose everything, and you in have order to, to find in order to your find your dream. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really is. I mean, in some ways, it's a show about vocation, isn't it? Like, how do you yeah. how do you discover what is the will of God, and what do you do when that seems to run contrary to you know to what happens in your life, and it looks yeah. like you're at a at a conflict at a crossroads, and you're going to have to you know you're going to have to double back around or something like that. And the hymn is like, nope, you got to climb that mountain. You got to ford that yeah. stream. You have to actually have to go into, I mean, this is using height imagery, but you kind of have to go into the darkness if you're going to come out on the other side. And there is something yeah. very Christian, deeply Christian. There's something very Christian about it. And the, I think the other thing that I love about the sound of music is the music. I mean, yeah. it is a kind of unabashed, unapologetic celebration of the power of music. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I remember my grade eight teacher saw when he first saw it, he said, watching the scene with Julie Andrews and the kids in the thunderstorm. And that's where my favorite things happens in the film, not in the stage play. It happens with the mother superior and uh, Maria, <laughs> which is just odd. I'm it's a crusty right. old nun, Maria. You want to sing about girls in white dresses? Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's much better. Much better with the, the children. In the thunderstorm. Yeah, much better. But he said he, he was watching it and he just, he, he teared up. He wasn't a teary kind of guy because the melody is so beautiful. Yeah. The words, even though no uh, Salzburgian would ever have a schnitzel with noodles for heaven's sake, but <laughs> who cares? The counting favorite things, the, the going to a kind of happy place within when you're scared and a song that celebrates all of that. And then sort of song after song, do, re, mi, yeah. just doing the scales. Um, Lonely Golter is all about the, the power of yodeling. I mean, yeah, it's the <laughs> basically every every kind of Maria song, certainly all of her songs to the children are about yeah. music is more than just making notes, yeah. right? It's a it's a spiritual act. And it's what it's what allows you to face your fears. I mean, that is kind of how and I that's Oscar Hammerstein, I think. I think that is his. Yes. That's I his vocation, right. right? Music helps people confront their fears, go to the deepest places of their hearts, and come out on the other side singing. Music has the power to yeah. redeem us. Um, and Santa Music really, I think, is in some ways, it, that, as you say, that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about this before, about how um, music, uh, especially in the, tr the Anglican tradition that we're both part of, is so much a part of the spirituality of Christianity. The best... Uh, 
well, no, I was going to say the best theology. The most memorable theology is carried by him. <laughs> sometimes the worst uh, theology, but certainly most memorable. It's bad yeah. theology. Yeah. But in terms of the experience of being drawn into life in Christ, yeah. um, it's music as much as homily, mm -hmm. as much as scripture in our tradition anyway. And I think in lots of other traditions. I think that's right. That, that really draws people into an experience of God because music is, you know, um, ephemeral. It, mm -hmm. It's it's here and then it's gone. It only, whereas, you know, art, uh, work of art uh, can be on the wall forever. A song only exists as long as the song lasts. Yeah. Right? What, what it, the, the prelude to when, when Maria and Liesel are singing, 16, she sings, a bell is no bell till you ring it. A song is no okay. song till you sing it. And love it in is. your heart wasn't put there to stay. It, this is very chintzy. Love isn't love till you give it away. But that's that's but, what this, you're right, right? Like there is an ephemerality to, to this. Yeah. And, and until you've given life to something, until you've sung the song, it's just black yeah. ink on a page. Uh, music exists yeah. in that weird kind of non-physical space. Um, yeah. yeah. And and the great thing, just as we kind of bring our uh, exploration for now, anyway, of Rogers and Hammerstein to an end was the amazing combination of lyric and 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 music, uh, song and word almost seamlessly together, uh, so inextricably bound together that you uh, even though we've been, as you've been saying the lyrics and the sound of music, as soon as you say them, I'm hearing the tune. Mm -hmm. They're that they're that much fused, and and that's true in the sound of music. But it really is true from Oklahoma right on through with with uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, yeah. uh, an extraordinary combination of word and music and story, often dance uh, that just lifts the spirit and touches the heart and and inspires yeah. um it was a yeah. pretty magical partnership and I, I i don't know especially kind of thinking about our conversation around something good and you know who hammers the little that we can you know who knows really but to think about a sunny cockeyed optimist like oscar hammerstein the second embracing this dark conflicted angry richard rogers and inspiring yeah. him i mean if if angry dark mean richard rogers could write a tune like the sound of music and climb every mountain there must have been yeah. something good at the heart of him must have been something great. and it, it's yeah. almost like you have to you have to meet your oscar hammerstein in order for that to be i mean this is a kind of a love story and i mean who knows i'm totally making this up but i love the idea <laughs> that uh, that they had this kind of beautiful musical partnership that brought out such such beauty in each one of them yeah, yeah. i don't know and you know th th that their musicals are still produced and produced yeah. and produced and produced all these years later and still find audiences and the characters still give us lots to talk about. They set the stage for a world of musical theater that we're fortunate enough to get to explore yeah. even in podcasts to come. So they, uh, they are our, our great progenitors and along the way, they made a lot of money. So <laughs> there's that <laughs> aspect of it too. It was extremely commercially successful. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yes. Uh, not a spare ticket for the first two years yeah. that, um, that sold out every show its first two years on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, the Sound of Music and continues to sell continues, out. Continues, yeah. One the of the most successful films ever made. And I think actually in the UK, the 1981 production with Petula Clark still holds the record as the wow. uh, the best-selling West End musical ever. 
Uh, and apparently, Maria von, the real Maria von Trapp said Petula Clark was her favorite, her favorite oh, to ever play the character. Yeah, she, I mean, you know, whatever, wow. Julie Andrews, hard to go wrong with Julie Andrews, but uh, she admitted later on, yeah, Petula Clark was really a bit, I think actually probably because Petula Clark looks a little bit more like Maria von Trapp and maybe played her a little yeah. bit crustier. A little harder. A little, little harder. Yep. And I think Maria yeah. von Trapp kind of yeah. liked, you know, Julie Andrews is sweetness and light. But Petula Clark, I think, had a little bit of an edge to her, Maria, yeah. and something yeah, about that resonated. It's a little Mary Poppins, you know. She's a little, uh, well, um, if, if she had brought a little bit of Mary Poppins, so the, I mean, Mary Poppins is the dark nanny. Maria Von yes. Trapp is sort of the sunny nanny. If there had been a little more Mary, I think we might have been closer on the mark. But, <laughs> yeah. Poor Julie Andrews. She got, kind of got stuck in governess roles after that, and know, she had to bear her boobies in, her, in that, whatever that film was to try to redeem her image. Yes. Darling Lily or whatever it was. No, I can't it's remember. the film that she made with Blake. Ten, maybe. Is that Ten, what anyway. yeah. She yeah. Ten, yeah. yeah. Whatever. Anyway, what a wonderful romp through the world of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein for the last yes, few indeed. weeks. And we'll see where we go next. We'll see where we go next. Stay yeah. tuned. Stay tuned. Okay. Bye, Peter. Bye. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.